Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. All right, so today we've got a very special show with my good friend Scott Norton, and we're doing this podcast on a walk. We're going for a walk in Brooklyn. It's an experiment, um, but I think it's going to be a really interesting format. Scott, welcome. Ah, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Scott is, um, like I said, one of my, my good friends. He started the company Sir Kensington, which is, you probably know of, but they make all sorts of condiments. Um, Scott and I met 10 years ago. Um, he was giving a talk about what he was doing. I was totally captivated by it. It's one of the best storytellers I know and one of the best brand thinkers I know, um, but also is, thinks a lot about technology and its influence on culture and on, on business. And so he's done a lot of other things and we'll get into uh, all of it. But yeah, Scott, super excited to have you. Thank you, yeah, it's great to be here. And um, I love this experiment because I love to walk. Yeah, You know, I live in Los Angeles now and when I come back to New York City, one of my favorite things about this city is being able to walk everywhere and um, be able to move my body and also just think on my feet. So this is how I love to have my conversations and all the better that we're recording our first podcast walking around your neighborhood in Brooklyn. Yeah, I think, we'll see how it goes. I think it's a pretty good idea. Um, I haven't really listened to many like walk and talk podcasts, but I feel like it's a good format. Well, hopefully we don't discover why more people right. don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're in, we're in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Um, it's kind of industrial around here, very creative space. And there's this is like the Little Japan Strip. Have you heard yes, of this? Yes, we're about it's the to... Little Japan Strip. Yeah. So Scott, what are you up to these days? So I've got the greatest job in the world right now. I support entrepreneurs and I invest and advise in businesses in the consumer sector that are growing and that have generally reached some degree of traction, um, scale and success and are starting to break through in culture, but are really looking to get to that next level of relevance and of success and to make a dent in the world. And so I am a, I'm really an investor and invest at, at, at growth stage in a lot of Brands, of course, because, you know, in the consumer world, you can't really get away from brands and brands and reputation creates a lot of value. But I will look at and, and understand and try and get to know anything in the consumer space that is potentially digital um, in different services and marketplaces. Um, but because of my background, a lot of what I do, the center of gravity is in food and wellness um, and, you know, beauty and hygiene and things like that. And what's, what's exciting you these days? Like, what's capturing your imagination? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great question about, you know, what, what is interesting to me. I honestly, I don't always know it until I see it. And so for me, you know, it's less so that I have a specific focus on 
a sector, right? It's, it's not that I necessarily say like, oh yeah, I'm really interested in, you know, baby food, or I'm really interested in finding the next, you know, condiment brand. And it's more so that I, I actually am most interested in what's going to surprise me and who has, you know, who has invented a novel new business model, who has invented a new way of, of solving a problem. So I think one of, one of the reasons I love what I do and why I think it's interesting is because there's always the novelty of finding a solution that no one's ever thought of before. You know, that's, I think, what, what really keeps me engaged and keeps me going. And, you know, every once in a while you find, you come across entrepreneurs and leadership teams that are on their quest, mm -hmm. you know? They are, in some cases, like doing their life's work. They are motivated by a deep sense of purpose. They have a deep sense of commitment and they feel called to the work that they're doing. And so for me, I, you know, I'm particularly energized to support entrepreneurs and, and leaders that are, are called to that, to the work that they're doing um, on a really deep level versus purely a you know, commercially transactional level. That's what's most exciting to me. How do you put yourself in a position to be surprised, like to, to find the thing you weren't necessarily looking for? Well, I think in my life, like I've never really succeeded by going through the front door. I feel like I've always gone through the side door. And, you know, it goes way back to some books that are, I mean, just as a sort of a natural sort of like out of the box thinker, but even just some, you know, books that I've, that I've read. Like if you take Seth Godin's Purple Cow, for instance, which is one of my favorite books, and it's really a seminal marketing text, you know, and really it's about product development, but creating products that are so surprising and unexpected that people have no choice but to pay attention to them. Mm. And oftentimes those products and businesses, they don't look anything like what came before them. And so, you know, if you, by definition, right, if, you, if there's a, a business that succeeded, a lot of people will basically try and copy that business model and they'll try and copy that product. But by definition, that space is already occupied. Right, and so I put myself in the position by kind of always recognizing that, you know, if someone has succeeded by zagging, you cannot look for the person that's zagging. You got to look for the person that's zigging, and so just recognizing that the more you know traditional approaches to solve a problem, traditional business models are not necessarily going to be the ones that 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 create a breakthrough in the future. Yeah, I definitely have a childlike sense of, of wonder too. And I'm always open and willing to be surprised. And I think the other thing is I put myself in the position to, to be surprised and to find these, these innovative opportunities because I draw inspiration from a lot of different disciplines. You know, one of the reasons I, I loved living in New York when I was here is because there, you do have artists and musicians and engineers and entrepreneurs and financial professionals. And, you know, it's simultaneously a big working city and also an international financial city, right? And so I, I, have, a, I have a wide network of very, you know, different types of people. And I tend to play at the edges and try and find the cross sections and, and the connections between all of them. So, okay, I get that you're in a mindset to be open to new things, but like, what does it mean day to day? So are you 
do people reach out to you? Are you like Googling shit? Are you like traveling a bunch? You know, how do yeah. you find stuff? Because I feel like your remit is so broad. Yeah. Right now it's a combination of two things. So one is that I have, you know, developed a lot of strong relationships over the years and I have a strong, you know, positive reputation as someone who has both been through the entrepreneurial process, right? And going all the way from founding a company, scaling it, selling it, integrating it, and then now being on the other side. There's, that's a fairly rare group of people that actually complete that journey and then are as an investor. So, you know, that, that's a, a rare seat that I'm in that is attractive to people that, you know, wanna send me companies and send me entrepreneurs. Um, and then also, I spend a lot of my time in conversation with people that are also in my universe and at the fringes of my universe, asking them what they're interested in. And, you know, if there's anything that I should be like looking at, that's maybe a, an earlier stage company that's starting to get traction or, you know, what themes they're kind of looking at. So typically I do this all through conversation and I'm actually one of the I would say the edge of my practice right now is being less passive and more active hmm. in how I um, spearfish for opportunities. And so whether that's looking at new business models around you know, content and commerce marketplaces, whether that's understanding how AI is gonna impact the consumer market and the consumer businesses, basically trying, trying to identify what are the interesting areas that have maybe not been tapped into and how do I become more proactive about finding the thinkers in that space and the emerging businesses in that space? That's kind of the next stage of my job. Mm -hmm. And is there any like micro niche or subgenre that is particularly exciting to you right now? I, obviously, I know there's stuff you can't chat about, but curious if there's any one area where you're like some subculture that you're into. <laughs> um, I am actually. You know, I'm very interested in the rise of the popularity of electronic music in America. Mm. Electronic music has been a global phenomenon. Last night I was actually looking at, dating back to 1917, there's data about the popularity of songs that were released. And so, you know, opera in 1917 was the most popular category. Jazz became the most popular category. And for much, of the past uh, 30 years, globally, electronic music, house music, disco music was extremely popular. In America, it was popular until there was essentially this death to disco movement, and it was um, basically attacked and replaced by 80s hair bands. But in France, and in Europe, and in Sweden, and in the UK, it never died. Yeah. Now, internet culture has changed human culture, as you well know. And because the television industrial complex has melted away, because radio payola has changed, because um, MTV is no longer where people discover music, instead TikTok is, now electronic music is coming back. We're living in a time where we're living further from our friends, family, and coworkers yeah. than we ever have before, post-pandemic, and um, with different you know, types of social mobility. We are living under great stress of climate change and of social challenges, mental health. And what do people wanna do when, when they feel those kinds of societal challenges? They wanna get together 
they want to find safe spaces and they want to go into catharsis. And that's what uh, the electronic music experience is. The act of dancing and the act of coming together is, I think, a salve for our modern era that people are now recognizing. So I don't exactly know how that translates into um, a business opportunity, <laughs> but, but you know that if all of a sudden a lot of people are paying attention to it and it's a big part of internet culture, there's going to be something. So that's an, that's an area that I'm particularly interested in. Totally. And I think electronic music is really like computer music, right? It's music that's only really possible with computers, digital. So I'll stop you there. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, electronic music is really percussive music yeah. that is essentially African music. Mm. And when you kind of, like, when you trace the, the history and the, and the lineage of what we know as electronic music, you know, you go back to disco, and before disco, disco became disco from Motown, right. and Motown breaks. Motown obviously grew out of jazz, blues, and soul, which grew out of Caribbean and African music. And so, you know, in, in many African languages, the word song and the word dance are the same word. And so, you know, dance music, right? And, and so certainly electronic music by definition is, is computer music. But when you look at the structure and the sound and the instrumentation of a house record or, or, or dance music or an electronic music, and you compare that to, you know, traditional percussive African music and song, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. So I think that that's also very, very interesting that there is a, it was, it's kind of like, you know, music before the music industry. For sure. Well, I think that's why I also think there's a distinction between electronic music and dance music, even though we think of them as similar. Right. There's a bunch of electronic music that's not particularly dancey, right? Mm -hmm. Like the whole like IDM world, Aphex Twin, yeah. that kind of yep, thing. Yeah, exactly. But and then you also have dance music that is mostly electronic, but there's also, like you said, the precursors of it and also the early stuff you know, the disco was not, you know, in many ways it was like taking, you know, a soul record and putting a beat over it and, and really like hacking it. So I think your point though is right about how when times are tough, people seek refuge and that kind of like happy music and happy spaces become popular when things in the world are tougher. Yeah. Um, spaces of unity too. And yeah. Spaces of refuge. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, and I think that's actually one of the interesting, I mean, we, we, this could be its own podcast, but the nomenclature of what is it, right? Is it dance music? Well, what music isn't dance music, you know, and electronic music. I mean, there are a lot of different subgenres and different ways to sort of slice it. But I think case in point, like there are these many, many genres that are kind of exploding and there's, there's subcultures and niches that are exploding within that. Um, and so I think that's a very interesting kind of mega trend to follow. I think what's also so cool about it is because you can make a lot of this music with just a computer, you have this complete renaissance and flowering. And not only do you have like new music being created every day, thousands of new artists being launched, but new genres are being created you know, regularly. There's this, you ever yeah. see this like uh, Iftar's Guide to Electronic Music? No. There's like this I'm, incredible I'm like that. old school site. Notes. Yeah, no, it's like this amazing website that has like a taxonomy and, and tree of electronic music. So it shows you like house and trance and, you know, IDM and all these different 
um, sort of branches and then it trees out into yeah. like, you know, ambient psychedelic house, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think electronic music is unique in that way and unique in how it's kind of, the genres themselves are DIY. Right. And people are constantly branching off of them. Because a good producer is actually an inventor of instruments, right? When you think about what a producer has in front of them, all the different patches and like folds and envelopes and things that you can wire up to make a, to render a sound. Yeah. You're, you're essentially like making instruments like a circuit board. Um, and of course, like Jimi Hendrix figured out new ways to play the guitar. You know, Jimi Hendrix was left-handed, but he played a right-hand guitar upside down and he played it pretty much better than anyone else. And so, you know, there's an, you can do that with a physical object, but only to a certain extent finger picking and, you know, claw hammer banjo or whatever the, whatever it is with a physical instrument, but with, with a, with a software platform or with essentially a, a, a production interface that looks like a circuit, the combinations are essentially infinite. Um, so yeah, there, there's, yeah, I think a wave of innovation happening there on the on the art side, and then also on the on the cultural development side too. And I think where this touches some of your forte is also, it's not just on the supply side or the creation side, but also on distribution, right? Like we now have completely new ways of distributing music. So a kid in their bedroom can can be a ne the next star because they can get distribution. In the past, they'd need to go through you yeah. know a retailer. Yeah. Um, so I think like. That's a good time. And they need to go through, not only a retailer, they need to go through a label, right? They need to go through multiple levels of gatekeepers right? in order for their work to even be shown. And so that work would have to fit in a certain commercial mold in order to get made. Yeah. And now people can go direct. And I think this touches on, you know, a bit of your experience with Sir Kensington, which was that, like, ultimately, you were distributing your product through grocery stores and supermarkets, but you thought about building a brand and building distribution in new ways. So how do those dots you know, connect? Well, you know, I grew up always kind of like skeptical of business. You know, I grew up in Northern California in the 90s and early 2000s. And this is at a time right where like Nike was known for sweatshop labor and the Exxon, Exxon Valdez oil spill, right? Like business was just, kind of this like evil force. And so never really thought that I would go into business. I want to be a, a filmmaker, um, which we can talk about separately. But I took this course in college my freshman year. And I thought it was interesting because it was a course on like entrepreneurship that used case studies. Case studies are essentially stories about business challenges that, that have a lot of information in them. And I thought that was just a super interesting way to learn something. And the first, course was on Dansk design, which was a, a basically mid-century pottery company. Hmm. And there was a Danish potter who would row every morning out to this shack on an island in Denmark, make clay pottery, and then sell it in local markets. And one day, an American businessman discovered this work at a trade fair and said, you know, this work is really compelling and distinct and interesting. We can actually like, like bring this to the States. We can bring it globally. We can manufacture it at scale. And he said, it's never going to work. You can't make this at scale because these are all hand done pieces. 
businessman said, let me prove you wrong, let me show you. And they figured it out. Hmm. And they started mass producing Dansk, Danish flatware and, and pottery. And that, that taught me that business could actually empower creatives mm. and give creatives a platform to both work at scale and work in a way that was economically sustainable. Mm -hmm. And it was really like that first day in that class that I had this like aha moment where everything creative happens in an economic context. And like that's, we can debate that and that's like a loaded term, but I recognize that, you know, for in the food industry, for instance, like to create a really compelling kind of conceptual proposition of a, you know, an English knight uh, that uh, is known for his condimenteering or to create a, 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 an incredible culinary proposition that will, you know, make really arresting flavor or even a, a proposition around sourcing and sustainability and the purity of supply chain. At the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter unless your product also works in stores, right? right? And is, you know, novel enough to be compelling and pioneering, but familiar enough to still taste like ketchup and not be rejected yeah. by children and, and mayonnaise that, that, you know, people can make a, you know, a tuna salad with. And so I have this kind of like consideration around polarity of, on one hand, if you make stuff only for yourself, you're an artist. Mm. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. We need artists. I love artists. I love art. That's one side of the pole. On the other polarity, if you do everything just for money, you're a hack, right. which is also totally fine, right? Like there are certain professions where I would really want someone to get the job done and I you know, pay them for that job and, yeah. and that's fine, right? And what I'm interested in kind of personally and also with the, the companies and the leaders that I back is the midpoint of those two between a hack and an artist is a craftsman or a craftsperson. Someone that has a, recognizes that a job needs to get done. A furniture designer needs to design a chair that someone can sit on, a chair that can be cleaned, a chair that doesn't break, a chair that can be repaired, right? But the chair should also like inspire someone and add character to a room and be something that someone wants to be proud of assembling or pass to their children or mm -hmm. you know, be part of the signature of their home. Mm -hmm. So I love businesses and, and um, working with leaders that have that kind of craftsman mentality. Yeah. It's, uh, reminds me of like the age old conversation of like, what's the difference between art and design? To me, design is like what you're describing as a craft. It's dealing with constraints. Those constraints can be the constraints of physics or of markets, um, or of just making something work. And I think that's, that's different than art for art's sake. Yeah. It's also very different from the sort of traditional model of the last 10 years of how venture capital funding has worked because it's almost like art for art's sake versus growth for growth's sake, mm -hmm. right? People would build these growth-oriented businesses that didn't really have the business artistry of like economic sustainability with them in them and it was easy to buy growth and it was kind of like more of a short-term orientation. Yeah. And so both of those, you know, don't really fit my business philosophy. Art for art's sake doesn't work and growth for growth's sake doesn't work either. Mm. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the Sir Kensington story. Like, 
your journey as an entrepreneur. How did it start? How did it come to be? Yeah. So the, the origin story is, you know, I've, I've always loved tinkering and I was in college at the time and, and my, you know, I had already accepted a full-time job. I was, a, I was a senior and I was visiting a friend of mine in Los Angeles and he said, we were driving to, he was going to go buy me a pair of Stefan Marbury's uh, Starbury shoes for $13, which was a gift that he got all of his friends for Christmas that year randomly. And he said, dude, I have an idea that's going to be huge. And I said, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? And he, and he said, gourmet ketchup. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, and he's like, think about it. And I'm like, well, Americans like don't even, you know, know what's in ketchup. Like, Ketchup isn't something that's ever thought of as gourmet. Like, it's, it's monopoly, it's dominated by Heinz. And he's like, exactly, like, the market is wide open. You know, think about how many different mustards there are. There's sweet mustard, yellow mustard, brown mustard, Dijon mustard, but there's only one ketchup. We could create something that was like a better ketchup. Yeah. And so I kind of, I said, look, that's, it's, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> Uh, it's never going to work, but like, let's just play with it for a second. Like, what, like, what would it look like? You, you know, you have to, if we were to do something about this conceptually, like, it has to be so out of left field. Kind of going back to, you know, everyone zags, so you got to zig. Right. And if Heinz is squirting, we got to be scooping. <laughs> and if Heinz is plastic, we have to be glass. And if Heinz is smooth, we have to be textured. And if Heinz is Americana. Mm -hmm. and synonymous with the roadside diner and, you know, fast food, then we have to be English. We have to be regal. We have to be um, somewhat exotic, right? And so we, we should dress it up like a, a, like a European preserve would and, and create some sort of a, like, eccentric English knight to, like, be the face of it. And it was really just one of those, like, you know, you're just in a flow state and you just get hit with this flash of creativity. And so we're like, should we call it like Sir Walter Raleigh's scooping, you know, relish? And he's like, what about Sir Kensington? And I'm like, oh, Sir Kensington, like that's, that's perfect. Like, where'd you get that from? And he's like, well, as you know, like I rescued this cat from the streets of Los Angeles named Maximus von Mason. And no, none of my roommates can ever remember the cat's name. So they always just make up a new name for it every time they like need to, to talk about it. And so one of his roommates was like, Hey Brandon, like, have you seen Sir Kensington? And I was like, oh, that's that's even better. Like, done. Like, and so I took that back to when I, you know, went back to to college for that final term. I was having lunch with my friend Mark, who I'm gonna see for dinner later today, and I I sort of pitched him this, and I told him this, and I'm like, this, you know, here's a here's a crazy concept, and he was like, well, we should do it. I'm like, what? He's like, we should, we should try and make ketchup. Like, what do you think it would take? Let's, let's, let's try and make it and see if we can, see if we can do it. And he kind of nudged me in that moment to actually think about, all right, this is cool as an idea conceptually, but like, what would it take to actually make it real? And I think what's interesting about this story is we started with a concept, a fully formed concept and a fully formed brand world mm. before we even put, you know, sauce to pan, right? And I went on to Illustrator and Photoshop and man, I think it was, maybe it was Dreamweaver or something like that back at the time, but basically hacked together a website 
that used all these Gilded Age 1890s fonts and different ornaments. And I found a Sears catalog that had, you know, vector files of graphics from the early 1900s that had been digitized. And I mocked together this brand and created like a, you know, brand system for it. Hmm. And we got to work trialing all these different catch-ups and we, we hosted a party where we slipped invitations into people's mailboxes that said, Sir Kensington invites you to a ketchup tasting. And people thought we were crazy, but they came and they tried these different ketchups and they ranked them. And from our rapid prototyping, people selected the ones that they liked. And ultimately that was the, that was the genesis of the concept. And then about two years later, after we had spent some time in the, in the working world, um, Mark decided that he was gonna do this full time and I, I joined him shortly after. And that was kind of the nudge that I needed. And um, then we started building it in New York. So I moved to New York and we went door to door to everywhere from cheese shops to restaurants. And we learned all the different, you know, parts of business the hard way from, you know, marketing, B2B sales, fundraising, organizational design, hiring, all, all the different things that it takes to, to scale up a business. And had a lot of our original theses debunked along the way, learned a lot of other uh, interesting lessons and, and had, uh, had some other kind of, you know, original intuitions that we had confirmed. And one of the things that that process really taught me is people don't buy things, they buy stories about themselves. Mm. We're like, we're so up on in this country in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we are always looking for how even if we would never admit this ourselves or think we're kind of above the, the sleight of hand of commercialism, we're piecing together our own identity with how we spend our time and how we spend our money. Mm -hmm. Whether that's yoga or bowling or electronic music or you know, spending the time and money on a, on a fancy mayonnaise. And so I, I think that that's super interesting because the world that, that we inhabit as kind of brand creatives and, and brand builders is ultimately the world of people's identity and values and you know, what I like to call the me I want to be. Uh, so that's, that's kind of w the origin story and, and some of the big lessons I learned from the process. Imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder. You'd be like, what kind of podcast is this? We know you need your fix and we're not going to deprive you of that. At Universe, we believe websites are the main event, so of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's universe.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the app store, my friend, and we'll see you out there.
So I feel like you know the way you describe the creation of a brand before the creation of a product of this brand world. I mean that's reflective of like a very mature brand thinker. And obviously now we're on the other side of it, and you're 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 a total veteran, but. You obviously had an intuition for that very early on. Where did that come from? Like, because it's not obvious, right? The stories that were told are that you know, build it and they will come. But but or make, yeah, make a better product. Yeah, yeah. So my dad is a is a storyteller. I mean, he's a he's he was a television director and a film director, and my mother and him worked together. My mother was a producer who who ran her own business um, with my dad, and. As a storyteller and as like professional storytellers, I grew up around a lot of that kind of production work. So they often used our house as a set for different work that they did. We had cameras lying around. My parents actually did some work with Adobe, and so we got like the it wasn't called this back then, but the Adobe Creative Suite for free. Mm. And so I was able to, from an early age, learn how to tell stories visually. With computers, and I think that I also, you know, if you think about like, I mean, personally, like the things that I kind of fell in love with, they weren't products, like they were feelings, and they were experiences, and they were things that are like transportive, right? That make you feel like you're in a different place, that make you feel like you're, you know, you're kind of like evolving and edging forward into a different person. Like what? And like going to a Japanese restaurant, right? Like when you. When when you go to a Japanese restaurant and you sit down and you're surrounded by the color palette and the surfaces and the like wabi sabi of the presentation of the meal, the perfection of the food, the um, the way that the staff carries themselves, you are in that moment like transported into something, even if you're sitting in Greenpoint,、mm. right? And so restaurants are the theater of food.、Mm. And they they create the space for you to escape. You know that's one of the reasons we love restaurants is because we are overcome by this ambiance that for a moment transports us somewhere.、Mm. And so you know I think high end you know clothing and fashion is very much the same thing, right?、It's, that is quite literally costuming、mm. yourself to play a role、um, that would fit in somewhere, and the entire creative production of That industry, all the photography, all the imagery, is geared around that. That's transportive quality. So there are different categories that were at level, different levels of sophistication of what you know technical marketers would call involvement. So there are high involvement categories like spirits, right? When like when you drink a martini shaken not stirred, you become James Bond, right? Or when you drink a Jack Daniels, you become like you have the virility of a country singer. And then there are low involvement categories like toothpaste, right? And I think the internet's had some role to play in this, but a lot of low involvement categories like condiments have become high involvement categories,、hmm. where like whether you're keto or vegan is like that's your religion, you know? If you're someone who loves her Kensingtons, you see yourself as fun and sophisticated, and capable, right? And knowing, and you're in on the joke. And now you have brands that have taken that to a whole other kind of level, like Liquid Death, which is canned water, or Vacation, which is sunscreen and skincare products that are basically a pixel-perfect rendition of an '80s Club Med vacation.
And so I think that we're, we're getting more sort of sophisticated and we're up-leveling as a culture in brands and products' abilities to transport us and to transport our identities into that me I want to be. So you're saying that there are categories of products where in the past, you know, you bought toothpaste and you didn't think twice about it, but now we're starting to identify or build our identity around an ever-increasing variety of products and services. Why do you think that's happening? I think it's primarily happening because of um, the decline of civil institutions. And, you know, especially when you look at America, things like participation in organized religion is down. Local government participation is down. We, because of the internet, we have fragmented attention. Yeah. So there is no more Ed Sullivan show, right? There is no more Mike Wallace that everybody watches and everyone has these shared experiences. Now, what you're watching where you get your news is kind of whatever you want. And whoever's the most sophisticated operator of the algorithm. And so we all crave and seek meaning. And when we have, you know, fewer moments to connect with family and when we fewer moments to connect with the spiritual and the divine, when we have fewer moments to connect with our local civic institutions, we need that meaning to be replaced. Uh, and hmm. so, again, going back to like why I support craftsmen is because I think that there's a morality that people in the consumer business have. There's a, I think there's a real morality that if you are going to be the thing that replaces civic institutions and starts replacing organized religion, you, you sure as hell better make it your livelihood. Mm. Like, you sure as hell better have an ethical point of view on what you're doing. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not the most studied sociologist or social psychologist, but that's, that is my working theory on why these things are, 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 are coming up the way they are. You know, the thing that, the way I've, I've thought about this is that Commerce is becoming culture, right? Like, we've always had, you know, if you look at the movie business, that's always been this intersection of culture and commerce in a very native way. Yeah. But now it's almost like what's happening in music or what's happened in music is happening in home goods or toothpaste or whatever other category, condiments. It's like we are we are um, finding that kind of niche interest, that kind of entertainment mm -hmm. in products. That's right, that's right. And yeah, I mean, when you think about it, like a movie is a protagonist who goes through a journey and you put your, right, the, the, the technology of, of filmmaking and storytelling is your own identity is then projected into the identity of that character, which is why movie stars are so incredibly like, you know, celebrated and hallowed in our society because by, by loving them and supporting them, we become them, right? We are them. And not only them, we're, we are the characters that they can play, right? We can be Tom Cruise's character in, in, in Top Gun or Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. And now, because of the, the other major reason why brands have fragmented and why there's so much storytelling in, in, in the consumer product space is because the cost of distribution and the cost of content creation is so low and the barriers to entry to create are so low, right? Before the internet, how would you actually go about finding a producer for a product? How would you go about 
raising money for your first campaign, right? There was no crowdfunding. There was no email. There was no Shopify. All those things basically enabled for fragmentation. Um, and so, whereas before, you would have only big brands selling nationally through national retailers, now you can, you know, you have a very long tail that you can kind of operate in. And, and so, and, and of course, now all that is coded in media, it's coded in content. You also see entrepreneurs being celebrated on, you know, shows like Shark Tank. And, you know, it's funny, like, I don't really watch Shark Tank, but when's the last time you saw someone pitch a B2B software business on Shark Tank? Right. Like, we love, we like, as a society, like, we love consumer brands, we love consumer businesses, and we can relate to them. So I think all those things factor into this, this, this change that's happening. Hmm. So, you know, I feel like you're uniquely, yeah, you're uniquely articulate about brand. And just going back to my earlier question, like, it sounds like you had just a deep instinct and intuition for it. When you were first starting out with Sir Kensington's, how much of that was premeditated versus just that's what you were doing naturally, meaning that you were starting with the brand, you were starting with the story, and then backing into the product? Yeah. The truth, I mean, the truth is that, like, and I think probably many of the internet misfits listening will empathize and also just find some commonality in their own experiences that at the beginning, like I was all about the storytelling and I was all about the brand world. And then I kind of got kicked in the face because like every entrepreneur, you realize that you're not an entrepreneur, you're a salesperson. Like it's really all about showing traction, yeah. right? And so you go from, okay, we built this beautiful brand world to then, all right, well, how are you going to produce the product? How are you going to get it on shelf? What's this? And it's not even like, how are you going to get it there? It's like, how are you going to fill out the form to like that that is gonna get the product picked up and dropped off and fill out the invoice correctly and like do we need a delivery with a lift gate? Like what's a lift gate? Like okay, what's the type of insurance that we need for this? So you become like an operations person, you become a salesperson. So I then devoted basically, you know, the rest of my kind of career for, for probably four or five years to just purely getting commercial traction and getting people to love and buy the product. And, and frankly, neglecting the, mm. the brand and storytelling on, mm. on top of that. Really neglecting it because, and now looking back on it, right, I would say that when you build a, a, a consumer company, brand matters in the very beginning, in the concept, that light bulb moment, right, the English, the English condimenteer, that's very valuable and that's very important. And then for a period of time, it's really all about, can your product make money for a bunch of people? Yeah. Can it make money for the retailers? Can it make money for your employees? Can it make money for your investors? Can, can, does, it, does it work in the system, right? And of course, can it, you know, can it make customers happy? All those things have to be true. And then, once you start getting to scale, and this is where a lot of people get tripped up, is brand starts mattering again. Right. Because, well, once you're in a bunch of stores and once you have a working model, brand is how you get from like level 10 to level 100. Hmm. is really creating that, that it's not about the, the blocking and tackling of commercial distribution and the transactional component. It's like, okay, once you've got that set up, then it's really about how do you grow your fan base and how do you get you know, people to go deeper and deeper into that world. That is one of the reasons why it's very, very hard to recruit marketers from big companies and big brands to go work at startups hmm. is because they're used to, you know, focusing on creative and focusing on maintenance right. and invention rather than necessarily kind of like what it, what it takes to break through either commercially or with that 
with that initial um, awareness. So, you know, that, that is, that's the journey that I've gone on in terms of the importance of, of brand. Huh. And so what did that mean as a business for you guys? You started out making artisanal ketchup. What did the business become and, you know, what was that, that ride like? Well, yeah, we started, um, you know, with a very high-priced ketchup, as, I, as, as you described. And we, you know, we slogged for about three years selling only a classic ketchup and a spiced ketchup in a glass jar that was really kind of a squat glass jar that was aligned with that initial very counterintuitive concept that we talked about at the beginning of the, of the podcast. And it was going okay, but it definitely wasn't blowing the doors off. Yeah. And there were a lot of barriers to people adopting it. And also the fact that, frankly, like retailers don't just want to deal with like a two-skew right. ketchup brand. They want, they want more. They want a sweet. So people started asking us, what's next? And we decided, okay, we're going to break the seal and we're going we're to start making mayonnaise mm. because we see a similar market structure. And it might work and it might not work. And that is when we started finding product market fit. Huh. So for a number of reasons related to price point, related to public perception, you know, people think that mayonnaise is unhealthy in a way that they don't think that ketchup is unhealthy, even though ketchup's full of sugar. People think that mayonnaise is, because it, it is, it's, it's nearly pure fat. But when they see a natural mayonnaise or they see a mayonnaise with the sort of like the trade dress of, sort of fun and sophisticated English gentlemen, all of a sudden, that started working. And so we started saying, okay, now we really have something on our hands. Very quickly, the mayonnaise eclipsed the ketchup in sales. And we also started, I think, leaning out of like, we're super weird, we're quirky, we live in this world of like the Victorian Gilded Age. Like, we used to wear like suits to natural food trade shows, and people were like, that's just not done. And so we actually became more similar. We became more like the norm, more like the category norm wearing t-shirts and starting to talk more about our non-GMO heritage and about the, you know, the ingredient origin story. And it became about much more about kind of like nutrition. And we frankly started talking and acting much more like a, a traditional brand. And, it, and that's, the, and we rose. I mean, we rose through that. And we, and we rose, you know, in terms of adoption and sales and started getting a lot of people's attention. But I would say that we took that a little too far. I think we lost kind of part of our soul in doing that. And I think that now, ultimately, the brand is in a place where, because we went in that direction, we lost a little bit of our onlyness, and we sort of forgot how to speak like that weirdo Victorian knight. And, you know, we have a, we have a sustaining business. But I think that ultimately, had we stuck to our guns and found ways to more maybe delicately tell both tales, then I think we could probably go into wider categories and we could probably, you know, command price premium in places where we don't. But, um, but that, was, that was sort of the process what it looks like. And it was very, it was humbling through that process to kind of, kind of like simultaneously know that like the concept that got us mm. from zero to one was not the concept that would get us from one to 10. And so what I'm hearing from you is like, this is kind of a dance. It's a dance between this kind of brand world and the commercial world. And you started out very strong with that singular vision, and then you figured out how to really sell it and meet the market. But that if you were able to retain a foot in both places, you'd be able to be more than a condiment company. Yeah, that's right. I mean, to go back to talking about the polarity between an artist and a hack, I think we were 
veering a little bit more in the direction of hack and, and needed, to, needed to find more ways to bring it back into the world of craft. Hmm. Um, and famously, you know, great brands, when they achieve that level of trust and that, that level of onlyness of like the itch that you scratch and like what you mean to me and the me I want to be, that's where they have permission, brand permission, to mm. go into multiple categories, right? Mm. And famously, Apple went from, it was a computer company that started making music players and started making fitness devices and was a music streaming service. And Sony could never do that. HP could never do that, you know? Actually, Sony is a different, maybe a different case. They, Sony actually does have a, a, a big spread, but like HP or Gateway or some of these kind of like computer so, companies in the 90s don't. Yeah, so what's the difference between an Apple and a, a Gateway in that world? Well, Apple was able to establish themselves as the premier tool for creatives. You know, what Apple stands for is creative empowerment at the end of the day. And... When you look at the you know Apple advertising campaign or Apple advertising campaigns, they're never talking about megahertz. They're never talking about gigabytes. Um, you know, I think fam the best campaign that really identifies them is the Think Different campaign, right? So they they celebrated Albert Einstein and Jim Henson and um, Martha Graham and Yoko Ono um, and John Lennon because they were radical creative thinkers, right? And by running a campaign like that, obviously the campaign didn't get them there. That was one, one brick in the, in the wall, but they, they lodged themselves in the public imagination as a tool to empower creators. Mm. And so when you own that territory, instead of we make the best computers, then all of a sudden you can stretch in all these different places and you, you become a, you be, you, and you earn a super premium price point as well. And people are willing to pay and invest in that identity on top of it. Hmm. So I feel like a lot of your story or the way that you think about brands and business in general is, is closely intertwined with technology and the internet. How did that come to be and, and how do you think about the effect of technology on, on, on the world as it is now? My like relationship with computers really started in the second grade when I was sent home from school with chicken pox. So I had chicken pox and I had to sit out, you know, a few days or maybe even weeks of school. And well, like I, what was I going to do all day? My parents had a Macintosh uh, Quadra 800 that they used to like edit videos on. Um, and I was, started playing like computer games on that. And I started messing around with these graphic design apps like in second grade, Kid Picks. Um, but then shortly after that, Quark Express. And so I learned Quark Express, which is like a layout and a desktop publishing app. And then I started in third grade, I actually have a yearbook. I was shocked that it was this early, but I, in third grade I was um, like the associate layout editor of my elementary school because I, I learned Quark Express. And so that taught me about the power of democratized creative tools. And so I learned Illustrator, Photoshop. And then when I was a little bit you know, later in my life, I, um, the internet became part of that equation. And now all of a sudden, it wasn't just you make something and you got to print it out or you just admire it on your own screen. 
Now all of a sudden you could share it and you could show it. This was at a time when there was no Facebook, you know, there was no, certainly no Instagram, there was no text messaging, and of course kids weren't really on email. And so nobody really had a way to talk on the internet. They only had ways to like read on the internet and absorb outside of AOL Instant Messenger. But because I had a little bit of like technical chops and I had this creative confidence, I, start, I taught myself HTML and um, taught myself these kind of like WYSIWYG design apps. And I started building websites and I had a ton of fun building websites, websites that would like, you know, throw up some of these weird graphics that I made or like websites like make fun of my friends on the internet. And that kind of went on slowly for a couple of years, you know, with like GeoCities and, and homestead.com that would give you free hosting with like a, you know, a long gnarly domain name. And I, I, I didn't drink alcohol in high school. And so I was always the designated driver. But I loved to party. I loved to go to parties. You know, when someone's like parents were gone and people would throw a party, it was like the coolest thing to me. I felt like, you know, the center of the universe when I was at one of these parties. I, I didn't drink, so I drove. And, and what did I do instead of drinking alcohol? I, I had a digital camera with me. So I shot photos. I would shoot all these party pictures of my friends and of our school. And I was talking to my friend, I was like, man, I have all these great photos and we're always like looking at them the next day, like, like the next week, like yucking it up, um, having a blast. And I was like, you know, I, I could put these online and like we could make like a, a website where we all see it and, and we can make a gallery. And my, my buddy's like, well, yeah, like do it. And I'm like, oh, well, I can't. He's like, well, why not? Why can't you? And I'm like, well, I need, I need hosting and I need to get a, a domain name and that costs $15. And he's like, $15, like, I'll give you $15, like, go do it. So he nudged me, you know, he gave me $15 and I registered a website and I turned on an open source PHP bulletin board where I created a website where every gallery was the parties that we went to that weekend. And that was the first time that I ever experienced product market fit. Mm. That was the first time where I was like, whoa, this is powerful mm. because, you know, like, when you're in high school, like everyone is totally, you know, voyeuristic and it's like this somewhat illicit activity. Now, mind you, like in today's world, this would never fly because mm. to post these pictures on the internet for, I mean, we would have all been like expelled or something like that. But we just figured that like the teachers and adults would never see it. I don't, I don't really know if they did. There were sometimes that there was a scare and I would like take it down temporarily. Um, but I learned from that experience that, you know, you need just creative energy and a good idea and something that people want to look at. Like you don't need a lot of money to get something done. You don't need a lot of money to get it off the ground. You don't, you don't even necessarily need a lot of skill to get it off the ground, but you need enough skill and enough will to hack something together. Um, and so that, uh, I think that experience of kind of creating what was, this was in 2003 and 2004, um, right before Facebook launched. And Facebook didn't even introduce photos except for profile photos until 2005 or 2006. And so this idea of seeing pictures of your friends on the internet would be like in the 1950s, like seeing your, your family on TV, or, you know? So it was, it was very new. Um, and I think I learned just the power of 
digital distribution and the power of kind of like subculture and community through, um, through that process. And since then, of course, like we have, we've all become creators and we've all become niche consumers of, of memes and our own little like subgenres that TikTok and Instagram want to, you know, funnel us into. And I don't really know where it goes from here, but I, uh, but I think a lot about how the, how the internet has and continues to, to change culture because of this double life that we all live. What's the thing that you enjoy doing most? This. What? <laughs> so I'm walking around and, and talking to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love chewing on ideas. I love, you know, discrete creative projects. I think the thing I love the most is going on adventures. You know, to me, whether that's travel or some, even, even just anything that can be classified as an adventure, something that is like discovery and a journey where you, where you like learn through the process. Um, we did a, at Sir Kensington's, we did an, we did a activity where we like discovered our purpose. Like we went through this long half day period of being in conversation with each other in small groups and, you know, piecing together like a purpose statement. Yeah. And the purpose that I came up with at the time was to lead adventures that turn outsiders into insiders. Hmm. And I always felt like an outsider, you know, socially, like in my, I was never the cool kid, but when you start to like take pictures of parties and put a website up, like all of a sudden people start to crowd around you and you become the center of your own little subculture. And, I, and we all start as outsiders, um, but if we follow what we love and, and we create something, then we, come, we become insiders in that and we start to own that. And so I love, to, I love to lead adventures that aren't just solo, but also kind of bring people along for the ride and get other people comfortable in their own skin and, and kind of exploring together. So that, yeah. I think that's my favorite thing. Yeah, I mean, that resonates and that, that tracks. Like I think, you know, to me, I, I also am very motivated by adventure. But the thing I have always wrestled with is like, you know, I think creation is the, is the flip side of exploration, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're so intertwined. Like, you know, they seem like, opposites like one's creative and one's consumptive but the truth is that learning feeds creation and creation feeds new learnings and so when you start a company it's really like an invitation to go learn this new thing by creating a new thing yeah oh absolutely yeah and that's and yeah i mean that's the other thing i mean what adventure allows you to do is learn by doing right, right. it allows you to learn things that can't be taught and I, I love to learn things that can't be taught. Hmm. So the last time we saw each other was actually a couple of weeks ago in LA. And uh, I don't know how it came up, but you were talking to me about how you remain in awe of the world and with a sense of wonder, you know, and, and I feel like as you get older and especially in the environment that we're, that we're in, it's just tempting to become cynical. So how do you, like, how does that come to you? Like, where does that come from, that perspective? It's, it's, that's, that's hard to say. I mean, I'm an intensely curious guy, like, period. I think it's a form of optimism, honestly. Yeah. 
like always just feeling like there's like more to uncover and more to discover and like there's got to be more to the story because if there isn't more to the story it's like kind of boring yeah i do have two beautiful children who are four and six and who are who see the world in very different ways and who bring a lot of creative energy and so spending time with them is really fun because you get to you get to explore with them and you also get to like be a teacher and you get you know really interesting questions like why are swear words bad and like of course there's no real there's no answer to that question there's no good answer to that question and so you know you you have to chew on some of these questions with uh, a lot of novelty yeah and but i think it i think it just comes from a natural sense of optimism about that there's always something more to discover yeah are there um any books that you're reading these days that are exciting you i am reading a book right now called tracers in the dark have you heard of that nope it's about a young IRS agent who becomes the sort of government expert in tracing bitcoin cybercrime huh. and using the bitcoin blockchain to understand where uh cryptocurrency is laundered and how it moves from actor to actor and what the different choke points are and huh. so it's a great um it's a great story of or it's a great series of stories about the cases that he takes on He happens to be Armenian so he's of course totally brilliant. Um <laughs> but uh that that's a really good book and and one of the things that I one of the things I think is so interesting about it is like cryptocurrency is obviously part of both finance and also internet culture and one of the things that you know is so interesting about bitcoin is the ways that it's misunderstood because so many people thought it was untraceable right? right? And if you think about what Bitcoin is in terms of traceability, it's actually the complete opposite right. of a traditional bank account. So a traditional bank account is that your in your your identity is known, but what happens to the money is totally private. And with Bitcoin, what happens to the money is totally public, right. but your identity is not known. Right. Right. And so that that is sort of funny, right? Because ultimately you can identify, you know, either anonym like pseudonymously or through identity who these different players are um but a lot of criminals of course made the mistake thinking that it was quote unquote untraceable but it's the exact opposite of of untraceable it's completely auditable right yeah. every single transaction is public and distributed across all these different machines and so of course you can process that data and trace crimes yeah um, it's funny the analogy of cash bitcoin to cash comes up like like in the real world if you want to buy drugs you'll do it with cash or something and in, on the internet you'll do it with bitcoin but they're actually extremely different like the appeal of cash is like once it leaves your hand it's clean right but yeah. with bitcoin it's it's totally traceable for eternity and the interesting question is like why why is that link there and i think it's because you know in the digital world almost everything is trackable or at least we that's the default but it's uncontrolled bitcoin's uncontrolled by a central authority which is i think why it became that like currency of record for things that fall outside the bounds yeah yeah i mean i think it is uncontrolled but i could also see you know if a bitcoin right a marker of a certain bitcoin or of a of a you know subdivision of a bitcoin is a stolen good or has been used in financial crime or in any crime that exchanges will confiscate it and fail right. to recognize it. It's not necessarily 
like possible that totally independently that Bitcoin gets like quote unquote canceled, but regulation will be coming. And just in the same way that if a ransom is paid with marked bills that all end the serial number all ends in a certain set of digits. Right. Those are marked bills that will, if, if they are deposited at a bank, will be tracked and that the person will be investigated. Um, I think the same will happen to Bitcoin and it happens with NFTs too, because when NFTs are stolen, they are, they essentially go gray, right? Like there's no market for the stolen NFT, just in the same way that if you steal a Rolex. Right. The serial number on that Rolex gets reported, and any time in any dealer that Rolex is taken in for service, it will be confiscated right. because it's stolen property. Right. And that that you know happens with NFTs, and it will probably happen with Bitcoin too. Mm. So the myth of kind of ungovernability is is again, I think that's gonna you know it's a, it's a, eventually it's, it will prove out as a myth. Yeah. So I think you know as we wrap, what's most exciting to you? about the future? Like, what, what do you get most excited about looking ahead? Well, I think we're, I mean, we are just absolutely living in exponential times, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we have seven, eight now billion people on this planet that are increasingly connected. You know, in the past 10 years, like we've seen things like Google Translate as an app on your phone. You can point it at a sign in Polish or in Japanese, and it will render in real time that in English. It, I think it's just a matter of time until we have simultaneous ma machine audio translation, right? There is now, of course, like the power of generative AI to fuel the creative process and allow creatives to have a basically a new toolkit and a platform to start with. You have new kind of modes of, of entrepreneurship and commerce and... Um, the ability to spread ideas, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited and I'm very optimistic. I think this is just the most interesting time to be alive. So, it's probably very excited. And, uh, and I think human health too. Like, I think we're gonna live for a long time. You know, I think we're gonna stay, if you, if you, I think if you pay attention and you care, I think you can easily make decisions to extend your life and extend the quality of life in ways that were like totally impossible 300 years ago or 300,000 years ago. And so I do, I do think that we're like entering this exponential age. I mean, it's also like, yeah, like society is tricky. Life is tricky. Like there's lots of different big societal problems and challenges out there, but I'm generally just very optimistic for how technology across all fronts is enhancing the human experience. Yeah, and I think that gets at your point earlier about adventure, right? Like we're on a wild adventure right now. And I think the way that one reacts to that is something of a reflection of their personality. So if you're the kind of person who gets excited by what you don't know and, and you can look at the sort of the feel of a thing and see where it's going instead of just knowing exactly where it's going to go, it's a very exciting time um, to be alive. And, but, I, but you also see how much fear there is because we don't know where it's going. Yeah. So. That's a lot of fear. Yeah. I mean, it's worked out so far. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I guess before we wrap, is there anything else you want to you say? I want to use the opportunity, like I mentioned a couple of times, there were people like, you know, my friend Brandon, who first came 
to me with the idea of Sir Kensington's Mark, who inspired me to, you know, actually like put sauce to pan with him. My friend who bought that $15 domain hosting package. All those people nudged me into greatness. They said, you know, this is what you have like right in front of you, just step into it. And I'm really thankful for the people that nudge others to greatness. Mm. And I think that like now I'm in a place in my life and in my career as a father and as a, an investor and, and who gets to work with entrepreneurs and, and leaders is I'm like, I want to nudge people into greatness and I want to uh. help people see what's right in front of them and allow them to rise to the level of their potential. Huh. And so like my message is like when you find someone that is nudging you to greatness, listen to them, hop into it because you're, you know, normally we have all this negative self-talk and this fear of what we can't do. And so when someone's telling we can do it, you run after it. Mm. And if you're in a position where you can have the generosity to nudge someone else to greatness, lean into it because they're going to thank you for it later. Mm. Wow. I think with that, that's a wrap. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.universe.se. See you out there. Bye-bye.